Welcome to About Empathy, a podcast that focuses on patient and healthcare provider experiences. Thanks for joining us for the second season of About Empathy. This season, we have engaging conversations with patients and informative discussions with healthcare providers. Each week, we will dive into a topic that we hope inspires you to have empathic interactions. I'm Dr. Dori Sekracia, and I'm here with my co-hosts. I'm Dr. Irene Ying. I'm Dr. Giovanna Siriani. We are physicians working in palliative care and psychosocial oncology at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto. Our clinical experiences have taught us that there is invaluable wisdom in the stories of the people we care for and work with. This podcast gives voice to both the patient and healthcare provider experience, while also reflecting on how we can learn from these stories to inform our practice. Medical assistance in dying is intended to give patients choice at the end of their life. Commonly known as MAID, the treatment is often misunderstood, and it can be unclear how to discuss it with patients. Dr. Deb Salby and Dr. Amy Nolan are physicians who provide MAID here at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. Together, they have helped patients and families navigate through the end-of-life process. We are grateful to have them on the show today. Thanks so much for coming, Deb. Thanks for coming, guys. Thanks for having us. I thought that we could start today by getting each of you to tell us what interested you in providing MAID, what led you to that decision. Well, I was a resident when the ruling came through on the Carter case. Then I became a palliative care fellow the next year, and Bill C-14 still hadn't passed yet. So this was January 2016, mm-hmm. um, and I was doing a home visits, palliative care home visits with Sandy Buckman, actually. And we, we had a patient, she had a brain malignancy, and she was bedbound and she was really really suffering because she couldn't do any of the things in her life that had previously brought her joy and you know we had done everything that we could to try to ensure that she didn't have physical suffering we had given her psychological supports and linked her up with counselors and she she was just desperate to die she just didn't want to continue living with the quality of life that she had and we felt like there was nothing else that we could offer her and it was it was devastating for her, for the patient and her family and for us it was clear that this was a patient that made would have been, you know, the perfect choice for her and we couldn't offer it to her. And so when Bill C-14, you know, finally came through, it was really clear to me that that was something that I wanted to be able to offer to my patients. And thankfully I had Deb to be a mentor for me. Deb, what about your experience? So I would have said philosophically, this was something I always supported, but I never, ever would have guessed I'd become a maid provider if you had asked me about this before the legislation came through. My path was rather different. It was my patient who was the first one in Sunnybrook who requested it. I feel a pretty strong allegiance to my patient. I wasn't about to say no. Certainly it was something that I felt was absolutely her right to choose, not just legally, but in every other sense of the word. Uh, And I have no philosophic difficulty with MAID whatsoever, so I certainly didn't want to pawn this off on someone else. Found out what I needed to do to provide MAID, and I guess what then made me a staunch supporter was actually experiencing what I would have called the overwhelming negative backlash about how hard it was to provide for her, how much uphill resistance there was, how much negativity around it. And if anything, that was then what entrenched me to say, wow, if this is what patients who want to make this choice are going to have to endure, they need an advocate. And would I have said I wanted that advocate to be me? No, but it was absolutely clear 
that this was needed and there simply weren't a lot of people around to take it up. Having been a provider, your name gets around. And so very rapidly, I became the person to turn to. And so then it just snowballed. It's something I'm now really, really pleased that I was the person who got brought into it like that. It's been an unbelievably rewarding experience overall. But that root in, I would say, honestly, was probably more brought on by the negativity, the obstacles throwing up, the barriers throwing up. That's what got me absolutely committed to being able to help people this way. So sort of a negative root in, actually. And do you think some of that has changed, Deb? Like, have you noticed a difference from when MAID was first legalized to now? Yes and no. I can certainly say that I have been subject to pretty interesting levels of vitriol from various camps. Has that tempered itself somewhat? Probably. I would argue it's still very location-specific. So there are times and places where I provide MAID where the general mood in that area is really positive, really supportive, really how can we help, let's make this as good as we possibly can for this person, this family, this group of friends, whomever it is, and others where it's still pretty struggly. Overall, it's probably better than that first year, but I would argue that there's still places where it's a bit more of a battle than perhaps something that's legal ought to be. It's such an emotional issue, isn't it? And it brings out people very staunchly on one side or the other. Mm -hmm. Have you experienced that, Amy? That yeah, absolutely. Polarization. I, I polarization? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. It can bring out really strong opinions in both directions. But the reality is that this is something legal and that it yes. has to be accessible to our patients. It's their right. And, you know, yes, a person who is a conscientious objector doesn't have to be involved in providing MAID. But I think all physicians need to be able to explore a request appropriately and refer a patient on if it's something that they're not comfortable in, in being involved yeah. with. I think that's been my experience is that patients have sometimes been abandoned by their healthcare provider or perhaps felt abandoned by their healthcare provider who opposes MAID and who has felt like, well, now you've made this request, I need to step away and I can't be involved in your care. And that breaks my heart for people because I agree with you. I think that that request comes with a, should come with a, and why are you asking for MAID? What is going on that is making you yeah, feel this way absolutely. and how can we best help support you? And I think sometimes that doesn't happen when I think it should happen 100%. And I'd add to that, this is not just physician-centric. Mm, I no. absolutely have had people yeah. where they have felt abandoned by their doctor, but I've also had patients feel abandoned by their nurse. Mm. I remember one patient who was really quite unwell the day that I went in and saying, well, I can't call my nurse because I know she disagrees with what I'm doing. Mm. And I think she's not, you're not not mm. trusting the care anymore. I've heard that patients say the same about allied health, mm -hmm. that they feel that they've been dropped by really the entire medical community. And I don't mean this uniformly, mm -hmm. that they have felt not just their doctor abandoned them, but their physio or their OT or their nurse or their physician. In, I was about to say social worker. I'll say uniformly, the social workers <laughs> actually probably been the group that I have never heard somebody feel not supported by. 
So I don't want to include them in my broader brush, but it isn't just physician centric. Mm. And an extension of that might be, you know, if somebody makes a request or wants to explore MAID and whomever the healthcare provider is might say, you know, well, you don't need that right now. You're not there yet. Why are you worried about that? Mm. Or, you know, we'll talk about that when the time comes. Mm. And for these patients, that's not good enough because they need to know that they have someone safe where they can explore this. Because for many patients, just knowing it's an option automatically lifts this huge weight from them. What's your approach to talking about MAID with your own patients? Because you're palliative care providers who also provide MAID. So what's your approach? And so our our listeners can help better understand what they can or should do. Our situation is a little bit unique because Mm. we're called in when a patient has sort of already expressed a wish to explore this and we're here specifically to speak Mm -hmm. about it. But I think maybe my feeling is what's more important is that individuals who maybe aren't made providers Mm -hmm. have a way to field those requests. Mm. If somebody is living with a terminal illness or they're frail, elderly, you know, maybe being able to say, you know, what do you understand about your end of life care Mm -hmm. options? Or, you know, have you ever Mm -hmm. wanted to know more about medical assistance in dying? And if so, I'm somebody safe who you can ask me questions about this. So what do you understand about your end of life options? That's That's something that I like to ask. Mm -hmm. For sure. And that can be part of just like a routine advanced care planning discussion. You know, you're talking about a person's values, you're talking about, you know, who their substitute decision maker might be, and just sort of throwing in, you know, do you want to talk about end of life care? What do you know about what that might look like? Has someone close to you died? How does that inform, you know, what you're expecting Mm -hmm. about end of life? Deb, would you say it's similar for you? Very much. I would say 95% of the people for whom I provide MAID, it's because I've been called in in the moment. Mm. Very rarely is it one of my patients, and that's a function of the kind of work I do. But where it has come up, I agree very much with Amy that it's a case of simply raising what are the choices. But I think also being alert to the clues, like the patient saying, Mm. I've really had enough. This Mm. is getting hard. I'm really tired now. I wish people would leave me alone. Mm -hmm. Any of those, I would argue, is an opportunity to broach. Not just, well, hey, do you want made? But acknowledging the struggle, acknowledging what they're going through and using that as the opportunity to Mm -hmm. talk about things like, well, what options do we have? It sounds like things are really hard right now. Is it something like physical symptoms? Is it that there's been strife within the family? Is it that they're actually trying to tacitly tell you, I wish this would come to an end? Mm. And certainly my experience is those kinds of comments are often sounding me out Mm. to see if I'm safe to talk to about this. You alluded to earlier, Deb, that you sort of walked into providing MAID almost accidentally, but that it's become a very rewarding part of what you do. I know, Amy, in the past, you've also shared similar sentiments. Can you tell us more about what is it about being a MAID provider that has been so rewarding? That part, honestly, is easy. Bar none, this is the most grateful group of patients, of families that I have ever come across. The letters I get from the families of people to whom I've provided MAID. I've actually had a letter from a patient that was written in advance that I treasure pretty deeply speaking about how this was the most important thing anyone has ever done for her in her life, being able to fulfill what was the final most important wish. And because it 
is a group of people, and, and I think this is important to understand in MAID. It's not just anybody asking for MAID. The people who request MAID, it is vitally important. It is the only end of life that makes sense for them. And so for them to not be able to have that, very much like the patient Amy described, is shattering. And how cool is it that I'm the agent through which that can happen? The gratitude that flows down on us is unbelievable. Mm. Amy, similar experiences? Yeah, 100%. It is without question the most meaningful work that I have the privilege to be able to do. These patients are so courageous and they're so brave and you get to bear witness to their last moments. Sometimes you're the last person that they speak to and you get to provide affirmation of you know the value of their life and you get to bear witness to the most incredible love between friends and family members. I had a patient who proposed to his partner just before we proceeded and he died in her arms. I mean, there's really not anything more meaningful than that. What have the challenges been for you? I think you alluded a little bit, Deb, to the challenges around those not being made supporters and the challenges around that. Any emotional impacts or other challenges you've experienced being made providers? Aside from people who just don't support Mm -hmm. it and therefore feel free Mm -hmm. to be very, very negative Mm -hmm. about it. Aside from that, I think one of the things people don't realize is every single time I give someone made, I'm throwing my medical license on the line, I'm potentially throwing my freedom on the line. We call the coroner after the case. And if they decide, oh, well, we disagree. This wasn't an appropriate case. It's a little too late. Mm. And I remember very vividly the first patient for whom I provided made where the diagnosis was really frailty. It was everything, some heart failure, some COPD, some peripheral vascular disease, some diabetes, some prior strokes. This wasn't easy, metastatic pancreatic cancer all over the body. This was the composite of everything. I didn't sleep either of the two nights before providing her mate. I felt physically sick to my stomach. I hadn't provided for frailty. This was in the early days before the CAMAP forum, which is a bunch of providers who chat online and support each other. There hadn't been any of that. There was no mention of frailty as a diagnosis. I honestly had no idea whether I was going to come home from work the next day or whether my kids would be bringing me cookies in jail. Obviously, I'm embellishing a bit, but that sense of we're doing something with no guidance Certainly in the early days, I just kept saying, well, I sure hope the coroner agrees with what I've done here. That's a huge anxiety, and that's still an anxiety on some of the cases where there are concerns around capacity, concerns around, is somebody else going to question reasonably foreseeable natural death? Are they going to agree with my declaration that this person is eligible? I'd say less and less now. I've provided Mm -hmm. so many cases now. I'm a little bit more immune to that, but there are still times when it comes up. The other big one for me is times where we may have to shorten, but Amy, why don't I let you jump in first? I think you're referring to fear of loss of capacity where you might have to move quite quickly. As Deb alluded to, these are patients where this is the most important vital choice for them to be able to die in this manner. And if you're concerned that they're going to lose capacity and that you're not going to be able to offer this to them, you know, you might have to make a judgment call. 
pretty quickly, sometimes the same day. And Irene, we were involved in a case where we had to provide the same day. I met the patient that day. You had known her for a long time. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. that was incredibly stressful because you want to honor that patient's wish so much. But you need to cross all your T's and dot all your I's and make sure that you're complying with the law. Because as Deb said, you know, this is our license on the line. Deb, you mentioned that a lot of healthcare professionals and physicians and and the public at large don't really understand sort of like, you guys are human beings behind the providers of MAID. There's an emotional toll that rests on your shoulders with it too. And so Amy, we oftentimes like to end our podcast by asking the question, if only they knew, do you have also something else that you wish others, whether it's the public, healthcare providers, knew about either MAID in general that's generally misunderstood or what you go through as a provider? We've already spoken to this, but I think the most important thing for people to understand is how critically essential this is for the patients. And when you're able to provide that for a patient, you know, they immediately stop worrying about dying and they start living in the moment. And really, it's the most profound therapeutic intervention that I think we can offer our patients. And so I would encourage anybody, any physician or nurse practitioner who is interested in pursuing this to go down that path. And I know Deb and I We're always happy to mentor anybody who would be interested. It's really the most important work I feel that we can do. And Deb, for you, what would you say? So I very much agree with what Amy said, but I'm going to bring in another part that I think people aren't aware of and that I really do want to highlight about MAID. We think of death appropriately as full of grief, full of sadness, full of loss. MAID deaths, and this is not uniform, but I would say it's probably two-thirds to three-quarters, are very different. At least half, probably three-quarters of my cases, people are laughing, they're joking, they're reminiscing together, they're sharing happy memories, and this includes the patient. It's the patient, the family. These are, joy is the wrong word. They know somebody's about to die, but this is so in keeping with honoring their wishes that there is joy in the room. It is routine that we're having bubbly parties or brandy parties. There's music being played in the room. There are people singing in the room. It's a very different environment. And when I compare that with the deaths I routinely see in the palliative care unit, which it's really hard. These deaths are different, and the families, the close friends, they generally hang around for maybe five minutes because they've said their goodbyes. They've been able to say the things that they need to say. They've shared together. They've loved together. They feel ready. That closure Mm. has happened in a way I just don't see anywhere else. And I think it's important to know just how much positive vibe there is so often in the room. I'm so glad you were able to tell us that because I don't think that is something people think of, even physicians. I don't think we know that. Those Yeah, I think that's important for them to hear that. And that's actually also people who have sat in on made cases routinely come out saying, I had no idea that's what it was like. Either because they're saying that was so lovely and so peaceful, or they're coming out and saying the family were happy. I've never had somebody joking and laughing as they died. And so it's, I think, something that you really do have to be a part of to truly understand. Thank you so much for coming to speak with us today. I think we've learned a lot from your experiences. We are going to take a short break. You are listening to About Empathy. About Empathy is recorded at Wellspring. 
Wellspring Cancer Support Foundation is a network of community-based support centers offering professionally-led programs and services to help people living with cancer and those who care for them. No referrals necessary, and Wellspring programs are offered free of charge. Visit wellspring.ca. About Empathy is made possible through an education, research, and scholarship grant from Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center and a medical humanities grant that is jointly funded by postgraduate medical education at University of Toronto, as well as the Department of Family and Community Medicine at Sunnybrook. That was such an interesting talk we had with Amy and Deb. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering what struck both of you about that conversation. Well, I think something we need to clarify with the listeners, because I think there's probably an assumption that MAID is predominantly provided by palliative care and sort of under the palliative care umbrella. But actually, when we spoke about MAID being polarizing, probably nowhere is it more polarizing than in the palliative care community. It might be surprising for a lot of people to hear that when MAID was first legalized, the majority of palliative care physicians were actually against it. Not necessarily against the fact that it was legalized, but really wanted to make it clear that MAID was a separate entity from palliative care and that, you know, don't turn to palliative care to be supporting MAID initiatives. And I'm going to be honest, I was one of those physicians. I was in that camp. And even though I still kind of agree with the fact that, you know, MAID doesn't fall under palliative care, I really softened my stance around the fact that we probably are some of the best people to support our patients through discussing their end of life wishes, right? Like we've been doing this for so long and we probably are able to do it with much better effectiveness than a lot of other clinicians who are even afraid to talk about death and dying, right? Like we come across that issue all the time. Not to say that we're the only ones who should be providing it, but having the discussions and training other physicians at large to have those discussions about what's important to you. You know, what does a good death look like to you or what is good end of life care? I think it's important for people to understand why there was opposition within palliative care Mm -hmm. for MAID. I feel like a lot of the opposition came from the fact that palliative care is about living And we see palliative care as about living. And that's part of our message as palliative care providers is palliative care is so much about living and living well that I think there was a concern that with MAID, that would be de-emphasized. I think that's where a lot of the opposition came from, from my perspective. Mm -hmm. Is that the way you see it, Dory, too? I think for me, when things became very emotional, when it looked like this was going to become legal, I remember being really a young palliative care physician and thinking that palliative care was the way to help people have a quote unquote good death and to alleviate suffering. Mm-hmm. And I think with experience as time has gone on, I'm much humbled by the fact that there may not be mm-hmm. such a thing as a good death right. for everyone and that as human beings we cannot always alleviate mm. suffering mm-hmm. our job is to decrease suffering as much as humanly possible and i think that made is one tool that allows for certain people who that's what they want and now that it's legal mm-hmm. That is what decreases their suffering. I'm not a MAID provider, but to me, it's always been a big part of palliative care that you have to talk about these issues with patients. It has always been our role to ask a patient, tell me why you asked me that. Tell me what you're thinking about. 
if you're wanting made, what brought you to that decision? What's going on in your life? I do a lot of talking about options at end of life in my role. And I would definitely say the majority of people, they don't end up having made, but helping them to understand what all their options are. What is palliative care and how can it help if you haven't heard about that? You know, are you having physical pain? Are you having psychological pain? Are you having social issues going on that's making you feel like a burden? Are you just one of those people that really needs to have a plan B and once you have one, you feel better and Mm -hmm. then that might not be what you ever use? Mm -hmm. There's just so many things It really made me sad when there was discussions that were very emotional that I felt that piece got lost. Mm -hmm. It felt like there was a divide. And for me, it was just sad that there was different camps. And I had always felt like that was their purpose to leave suffering as much as humanly possible. And when it became really emotional and it became legal, I felt the camp started and we didn't feel like such a big family anymore with Mm. a common goal. Mm. But I completely understand it for sure. Mate does not have to be provided by palliative care physicians. It makes sense to me that there are palliative care physicians who feel that is part of end life Mm -hmm. options that they are happy to help with and those that do not want to do that. But no one is going to ever force any physician to do that. So why we wouldn't all be comfortable with the discussions was, I think, concerning. Right. When MAID became legal, I was both happy and and sad. And sad. I was happy because I was glad for those people who had suffering that couldn't be relieved and they had an opportunity to be eligible for mate and to have their suffering alleviated if that was important to them. So on the one side, I was happy about it. On the other side, I was sad because there's an access issue to palliative care in Canada. So I was sad and worried for those people who couldn't access palliative care Mm -hmm. because of limitations around Mm -hmm. accessing palliative care and feeling like made was the option for them because they couldn't access palliative care. So that was my concern. But Overall, I look at people like Amy and like Deb, and I really admire them. I admire their bravery and their advocacy. You know, I'm not a made provider. I feel like that's not something that I'm comfortable with in my practice. But, you know, I'm so thankful for people like them who can provide that even in the midst of the opposition that they faced Mm -hmm. and in the midst of their own fears around whether they're putting their livelihood and their medical license at stake every time they provide MAID. Mm-hmm. When MAID became legal, I'm like you, there was a happiness and a sadness. It was both. I did really hope it became a huge opportunity for palliative care to flourish, though, to show what the other option was. And I find it's such a great opportunity for me to explain palliative care to patients. Mm -hmm. And I think it helps patients understand and they are very open. I find it can help palliative care. It's an opportunity to talk. If you ever talk about me, I think it's wrong not to talk about all the options. Mm -hmm. If someone's just asking you about their options, Mm -hmm. it's this great opportunity Mm -hmm. to really promote palliative care, promote palliative care access. And so my hope was, although this was legal, and very emotional that it could help us as a community to grow and flourish. Mm -hmm. But just to clarify, you know, when you talk about options, I also don't want people to think that it's either or, Mm. right? Oh, Like Mm -hmm. you can get palliative care to help support you and still consider made. Those two things can coexist. You're right. 
Absolutely right. I was thinking for the person who comes in to ask about MAID, sometimes they had never even known there's the option to go visit the palliative care doctor. Yes, well, yes. Had yes, a palliative exactly. care consult? No. Oh, this person read something in the paper and thought, I want this, but hadn't thought about all the other options. Mm. That's such an important part of figuring out, well, why did you ask me about that? And what else have you been thinking? And what are you going through? And all those things we do as palliative care people. Mm-hmm. I think what stuck out for me is I didn't actually really appreciate the amount of stress and anxiety they were under in making their assessments and in providing made. I don't think I really thought about that before, how every decision could be analyzed for whether that was appropriate or inappropriate, legal, because the coroner in Ontario was involved with every case regarding MAID. I did see them as advocates. I didn't actually realize how much they were putting themselves and their livelihood on the line. I don't think I really appreciated that. Mm -hmm. I think it was really the closure Mm -hmm. that they talked about with the MAID cases that they've been involved with, that opportunity to say goodbye to write letters to people in your family, to write letters to your healthcare providers. I think that closure is something that seems to be what sparked the ease and the joy in the moment of made provision. And I think that's something that I didn't appreciate either. It's almost like there's a certainty around when your life is going to end. And in the lead up to that, there's a preparation that happens that maybe other people who die differently or who die in different ways don't get the opportunity to have. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that has anything to do with the type of person who wishes to have made as their option at end of life. I'm thinking of a patient that Amy and I both knew. She was an amazing patient who gave us permission to talk about her experience after she had made. She did write letters. The first time I met her, she told me, I am going to have made. Amy was her palliative care doctor. I was the psychosocial support physician. And the day it happened, she asked me if I would be there. I wasn't one of the assessors or providers, but she asked me to be there for her daughter and husband. And it really was the first time I had ever been part of a made happening on the floor. And it is what they described. There was happiness and a lot of sadness as well. So there was lots of crying, but there was lots of laughing and joys and tears they reminisced prior to the procedure. And it was a really eye-opening experience for me. But this was a patient that she knew that this is what she wanted, and she was a very organized person. And she would tell you this herself, I like control, I like knowing when things are going to happen and not happen. And so it made sense to me that this mm-hmm. would be a viable choice so for that was, her. That was the right decision for, for her. her. And we had lots of time to get to know one another because she didn't progress for a mm. while. Irene, what struck you? I think as hard as they have said that this has been for them, again, because of opposition, because of bureaucratic considerations, that this still remains Mm -hmm. one of the most rewarding and meaningful parts of their job. And, you know, that's probably what in part drives them to continue to provide this service. And, you know, before I wouldn't have really understood, but, you know, as Amy alluded to, we had a patient we shared together who I knew for many years. She knew that maid was what she wanted when she became quite ill and was going to die. And the level of, I guess, joy, I guess, is that that the right word? It feels weird to say it that way, but the family was just so happy that she could get 
this last wish that was so important to her. And that was kind of when I got like how important this work is and why Amy and Deb just feel so strongly about her and, and are able to keep doing it. So I think that Deb and Amy gave us a lot to think about. It was a very interesting discussion, important discussion. And I hope this leads to our listeners continue this conversation going. This is not an easy topic. This is an emotional topic and something that you might find divisive sometimes. But I think the way we move forward is to keep talking about it and approaching it with empathy and compassion for people on both sides. I'm really looking forward to our next episode where we get to talk with a patient who's made the choice to have made. Thanks for listening to this episode of About Empathy. We hope the story that you heard today has inspired you to engage in compassionate, authentic, and empathic interactions. We'll be back next week with another conversation. Subscribe to About Empathy to get a new episode each week. When you subscribe and rate our podcasts, it helps others to find us. Please share our podcast with your health professional colleagues and friends. Our website is aboutempathy.com. You can find the notes from today's episodes and information about our show on the website. About Empathy is a Kickback Productions podcast hosted by Giovanna Siriani, Dori Sekaracha, and Irene Ying. Recorded and produced by Jackie Skinner with additional production and writing by Laura Takahashi. Music by Jerry Finn and Jackie Skinner.